Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Ebersol. Today, I am delighted to be joined by the poet Erica Wright, author of Instructions for Killing the Jackal, Black Lawrence Press, 2011. As I waited inside Erica Wright's first book of poems, I immediately became aware of not only my gender, but of the female, woman, girl, and the child. In fact, gender, that construction site where culture and biology come together to play out their destructive and creative collaboration, seems at first to be the blueprint for the lyrical arguments made in each poem. But it turns out gender might only be a part of the poem's fuel. Erica Wright's speaker, while clearly someone who rejects the wide bubbly grin and feminine pose of the little girl, and indeed is someone who prefers dirt under her nails instead of polish painted over them, wants us to understand that the violence of loneliness, regret, and vulnerability have perhaps less to do with one's gender or sex, but more to do with the fundamental element that makes us all human, the need to love and the need to be loved. Instructions for Killing the Jackal is filled with both poems of confrontation, but also poems of tenderness, humor, and honesty. And yet the poet isn't merely obsessed with the abstractions of the human interior. In fact, the poet draws heavily on imagery, both classical and contemporary, both bleak and lush, to serve as a scaffolding the reader can hold on to while the speaker whispers in our ear one devastating truth after another. Erica Wright, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Wow, thank you so much, Sean. That was a, an amazing intro. <laughs> Very flattering. Oh, well, uh, it was a pleasure to arrive at it. Um, before we get into the book, uh, we definitely need to learn about Erica's origin story. So tell us where, uh, where you were born and raised and uh, kind of move us through uh, that territory. Sure. I was born and raised in rural Tennessee, uh, an hour south of Nashville, and uh, I think the rural part is pretty clear in my in, a, in my poems. Maybe not particularly Tennessee, but small town life is definitely uh, something I still think about. Even though at 18 I moved to New York City, New York City, uh, where I went to school, and was there for 13 years, and just recently relocated to Atlanta, so another big city, but back back to the south. Yeah, definitely. And tell me about, uh, do you think your choice to go to New York City was clearly like 
just a clear academic one or, you know, to go from the rural uh, landscape of Tennessee to the urban landscape in New York City is definitely a contrast, to say the least. Uh, what was driving you towards the metropolis? Well, I, my, my town was uh, quite small. It's uh, about 400 people, and it's actually a, a nice place to grow up, you know, very close to nature, and, uh, you know, everyone leaves their doors unlocked and open, actually, in the summer. Yeah. Um, but it is the kind of place where people get stuck, and I knew early on I didn't want to get stuck there. I didn't want to spend my whole life there. So uh, I really just, uh, you know, I wanted to move to a city, and in my kind of provincial mindset, New York was the city. So <laughs> I, uh, when I got accepted into NYU, I was pretty ecstatic and hopped on a plane and, and did it. Yeah, and how <laughs> and did everything wrong, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, what were your parents, uh, did your parents, like, fully support this move, or were they, like, a little, like, terrified, or were they like, yeah, go for it? They, no, they were very supportive. They were, of course, apprehensive. And uh, I think now that I'm older and we can talk about it, I realize actually how scared they were right. uh, about the process. But at the time, they were nothing but supportive. Uh, and that was important because I was, uh, it seems like such a bold move, but I wasn't a particularly bold teenager. So I think that if I, they had expressed the slightest bit of resistance to the idea, I probably would have caved in and just, you know, stayed right there. So I was very lucky in that regard. Wow. Yeah. I think that's a great, <laughs> that's with some great insight to some good parenting, actually. Yeah. Um, and tell us a little about your experience at NYU. Well, it was, NYU is an interesting school because it's, it's an urban campus. Um, so it doesn't have a center, it doesn't have a square or any kind of common areas, so you kind of get thrown into the city, which is really bewildering at first. Uh, there's not much of a support system in place, so once you get over the free fall, though, it's kind of great, because you're, uh, you know, you're not just doing academic events, you're, you know, stopping into cool little, you know, underground shows, and you sure. are, you know, you just feel a little bit... Uh, uh, like you're part of the city as a part of, as opposed to being part of a school, so that was neat. And it's a it's a great place to kind of disappear. It's so big you can really just do your own thing and uh, and not have to worry too much about what your classmates think because you don't really see them. You don't see them outside of the whenever you leave your your classes. So definitely. And yeah. where was uh where did writing and poetry kind of figure in when you got to NYU? Was this something you were kind of doing? Um, back in high school, or when is was there kind of like a conversion moment of like, I am a writer, I write poetry, or did it kind of, you know, how did that develop? I'm actually a latecomer to poetry, at least whenever I compare my, my story to a lot of poets I, I admire who were writing poetry. They talk about the poems they wrote in, you know, you know in elementary school exactly, and high yeah. school and and, you know, I was always, you know, literature was always a refuge for me that, you know, I just read voraciously and it was the one, you know, reading and understanding literature was natural to me in a way that other subjects weren't. But I never thought of myself as a writer. Uh, I actually ended up in a introduction to a uh, creative writing course with Gregory Parlow, who is now, you know, now, uh, now a big deal as mm -hmm. he as he should be. Uh, and I, I took the classes I thought it was a requirement. I didn't have great <laughs> advisement. Um, so I, you know, I signed up for this class and, you know, just loved everything that we were reading, obviously, because that, you know, that was my, 
that was my passion. But then I just started writing, you know, short stories and and eventually poems. And uh, Greg was actually really instrumental in in uh, um, saying that, you know, there's something here. There's a, you know, there really is a spark. You're, you know, you have potential. So I think I kind of got really excited about literature, uh, about writing at that point. And uh, and that's really when I found poetry. So fairly late, I would say, you know. I mean, I was still young. Now it's funny, <laughs> but you know, it's twenty or twenty-one. I, you know, no. I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize I could, I could do this. Yeah, that's pretty extraordinary, actually, to discover that uh, uh, in your undergraduate years. And were you what? But you were majoring in English at NYU. I was. I was majoring in English, and then this other major that was new at the time, and I'm not sure it still exists. It's called. Uh, it was called dramatic literature, mm-hmm. and it was basically about the the theory of drama. So I took a lot of classes in, um, you know, uh, Greek tragedies and Shakespeare and uh, a really cool class on modern theater, which is the perfect class to take in New York because you get to go see these new playwrights. So, uh, yeah, I was really interested in playwriting and really interested in theater, uh, but honestly didn't have much of a talent for for playwriting. Uh, I took one class in it and uh, did not have that spark, whatever that is. I was I was lacking so. <laughs> so you ended up after NYU going uh, to the MFA program at Columbia. Did you? Uh, was that a pretty easy decision to go for the MFA? Seeing that you came to writing sort of late, was it kind of like, you know, what was your feeling when you were done with your undergraduate work? It was a fairly easy decision. I, you know, I knew I wasn't where I wanted to be. And uh, I think that there are a lot of paths to to that I could have taken to get to that point. Uh, but at the time, sort of looking at the resources in front of me and the things I could do, the MFA seemed like the the best choice for me to sort of improve my writing and really just kind of hunker down and study uh, the nuts and bolts in poetry and fill in the huge gaps in my in my study of the of verse. So uh, while I, I'm not a um, always an advocate for the MFA. I think there are a lot of ways to, to learn poetry. For me, it was a fairly easy decision. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up kind of your uh, some hesitation about the MFA. I think I wrestle with it often, mm-hmm. um, uh, no doubt, when the student loan uh, will come. But <laughs> Every month. Yeah, Every month. <laughs> I know. It's so predictable. They're so reliable. It's like I, I oh, love I for that. Nice. But uh but, you know, most people I talk to, I guess, you know, you don't want to say you regret it because that would just seem like a disaster. But, um, you know, it just, I don't know. I don't really actually want to get into it, but it is a strange <laughs> cultural phenomenon, you know, and Donald Hall called it that, like, institutional cafe, which when I heard that, I just, like, made me cringe a little. I was like, is that all it is? <laughs> but be that as it may, uh, you know, it's still an extraordinary experience and one – you know, we make the best choices we can in the moment, and then we live with them. And uh, and I think at the end of the day, if you're a reasonably content person, uh, your past is, uh, you know, it's it's as it was meant to be. So anyway, <laughs> let's get to your experience, though, in the MFA program and how it relates to this first book, Instructions for Killing the Jackal. Um, how many of the poems would you say uh, were generated at Columbia? Did your thesis go heavily into this book, or was this book – um, kind of very independent um, of your uh, of your experience in the MFA. Uh, what's the relationship between the the book and your experience there? I would say uh, probably only about 
25% of the poems were actually uh, drafted at Columbia in part of my thesis. Uh, I think, you know, when I arrived at Columbia, I, you know, it was very, I had a lot of enthusiasm, but I didn't have a lot of knowledge. And I think that is one thing that's great about the MFA, and particularly Columbia's, which is rather rigorous. Um, you take four or five courses every semester, uh, except when you're you're working on your thesis. So um, I think that I was really processing a lot while I was in classes, and I'm glad actually that that's the way I was writing. Um, you know, there's always this kind of wish that I was I had reached a higher level so I could have worked with these impressive people when I was working on better poems. But I think I needed that time to really you know study study the craft and. Um, and think about the way form influences content and think about, you know, what these uh, more avant-garde poets are doing and, you know, whether or not I'm interested in that. So I think I needed the, the coursework um, to really give me enough confidence to write the poems I wanted to write. But most of them were actually uh, after Columbia when I really figured out what I wanted to do in this book. Yeah, how did what, what were you doing after you, uh, when you got out of, Columbia, did you, you know, I know you're a poetry editor at Guernica, and you started teaching, is that right, and uh, and kind of working on this book? Yeah, I jumped right into teaching. I, I got lucky because uh, adjunct jobs are a little bit difficult to, you know, mm-hmm. to obtain, but I got into the CUNY system, the, the University of New York system, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I am pretty sure I, I had gotten classes before I finished my last coursework at Columbia. So right that summer, I jumped into these uh, rather taxing summer courses and sure. taught too many because I didn't I didn't quite know what a summer course load mm-hmm. was right like. But yeah, so I was uh, really just adjuncting and uh, and working on the book um, simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you got this manuscript together, did you send it out to a bunch of places? What was kind of the process of getting it published? And how did you eventually find a home for it at Black Lawrence? Yeah, you know, when I finally got the manuscript together, which was, which took a while. It took a while to actually for the poems to become a book, um, in my mind. You know, I mean, they might just seem like random poems to someone else. But for me, you know, they finally gelled and were having conversations with each other. And yeah, I was sending, I, you know, I sent out to um, all the presses I admired. It's, that was my only criteria. Right. Um, just presses I liked, you know, I liked the poets that they were publishing. And I, I really didn't even worry too much about whether they were publishing poems exactly like mine. Mm-hmm. As long as I liked the, the work that they were doing, I thought maybe there might be some sort of kinship. Right. And, uh, you know, and Black Lawrence Press was one of those. And I love that they were publishing. Not only were they publishing younger new poets, but they were also, it seemed as if they were giving homes to these poets mm-hmm. because they were publishing their second collections or they were publishing their translations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really like, from an outside view, it seemed like they were creating a bit of a Black Lawrence family. And exactly. whenever my book was accepted, I, I found that to be true. They're very supportive and they're, uh, you know, they really seem to care mm-hmm. about the people they're publishing and the work they're publishing. Yeah, and what was it like when it first came out? It was your first book of poems of a huge moment for a poet. Was What was your relationship with the poems by the time the book came out? Uh, was that a distant relationship, or were you still kind of plugged into these poems? Oh, yeah, I feel that's a, that's a lovely question. That's a little bit difficult for me to answer. The earliest poem I had written 10 years before publication. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, you know, that poem, I don't really even remember the genesis. I, I mean, <laughs> I can look at it and I can analyze it, but it almost seems as if it was written by a different person. And yeah. then uh, there were a couple of poems that I added fairly uh, last minute. So those I can, you know, talk about probably a little more um, authoritatively. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I think that there is this kind of weird distance that happens. That's a that's a perceptive question to ask because you're already working on new work. At least I would imagine most poets are that you're kind of have a new project. So definitely, yeah. Well, I think I think uh, it's a good time to jump right into the book uh, uh, and hear some of these lovely poems. I can't wait to hear you read them. Um, and I was talking uh, to the last poet I talked to, Kevin Gooden, that the first. Uh, the first poem in a book is always special for me because I feel like it's such a such an intricate introduction for the reader and such a big choice it seems for me. Uh, it doesn't seem like the first <laughs> poem in a book would be an arbitrary one. No, but, probably uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, if you could read uh, "Sweet Bird," that would be fantastic. Sure. Sweet bird. Not everyone learns to dress a wound at such an early age. Not everyone learns how to cause one or how to fish her fingers in for best effect. No bigger thrill than the feel of skin from the inside, as if to say, it's not really deep after all, and if you drop something in, she can fetch it out for you. Little one gives lessons in idiom, what it means to get over someone at all. Thanks, Erica. Um how did you, why did you put this poem first? It seems to uh, kind of set up, um, the little one gives lessons in idiom. Um, as I read your book, it felt like this was kind of a book that, like, you had to write that you uh, couldn't get, I mean, and this is probably me recklessly projecting, <laughs> but <laughs> it felt like a book of poems that you had to write before you could literally get on with your life, I think. I don't know. Um, but that's probably not how it was. But this 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 first poem does seem to address, um, you know, I'm tentative to look start making claims about what it's about, but it seems to say that poetry is, in a way, some belated articulation of some sort of trauma. Uh, uh, what can you say about this poem as it as it serves to generate all the other poems, maybe? Sure. Um, this actually was the last poem in the manuscript for mm -hmm. a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone very astutely told me that uh, as a last poem, when you end something with at all, it's a little bit flippant. <laughs> it's almost like you know, telling the reader, you do the rest of the work. And I thought, oh, well, I don't, I don't want that. So, uh, but it was a very important poem to me. So I thought, well, maybe we'll put it at the beginning and see how that informs work. And I like that. I actually liked it at all as a gesture towards, um, I have more to say that this poem isn't actually, uh, you know, doing all the work of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, and then whenever the, whenever I was trying to construct the book, which is, um, so difficult, so difficult to order order a book. I'm sure some people have a, a magic touch, but I, I do sure. not. Um, but I, I finally situated the poems kind of in order of, of 
a real human speaker to someone who's become almost mythological by the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this to me is, I think, one of the most vulnerable poems in the in the book. It seems mm-hmm. to me, as you mentioned, this idea of overcoming a trauma. To me, this is someone you know with a little bit of bravado, but you know, a little bit fresh out of of some challenges. Um, so the wound's dressed, but it hasn't healed yet, is how I would say it. And then as the book progresses, I think that um, the bravado becomes a little more exaggerated and the speaker becomes more self-confident and then mm-hmm. by the end, you know, isn't even really fully human. So um, so I moved it because I didn't want that ending to be flippant, but then I, I think it actually ended up working a lot better. No, I think you described the whole trajectory of the book perfectly. I actually... Uh, um, with the at all, I actually I wonder if I could I wonder if, if I could I wrote right next to it. Oh, you can't even see it, but I wrote right next to it. Uh, an arrow pointed at the at all, and it says like spitting on the ground. Like a, a, that's what it like. It struck me as like somebody just like spat on the ground after that that poem, and uh, maybe I was uh, onto something. So let's. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's look at another uh, poem. Um, I'm not going to move this very far. I'm going to have you just flip the page uh, <laughs> to a note to slip in your pocket, never slips. Okay. Note to slip in your pocket, never slips. Did your mother ask when you'll bring a wife? Purse her lips until they disappeared. Did you show her the ceramic bird, then shut it away with the other birthday gift? You say, you're better off than most married folks you know, and I want to toss off, lets you and me make it go a bit. You can fill your truck bed with hydrangeas. I'll dig their holes with my hands. Then again, to be honest, I don't much care for dirt, so let's scratch the whole thing, can't we? I never told you about the night your friend sang to me as I clutched his infant son in my lap and asked, when Susan getting back from her sisters? As if my refusal had anything to do with him, he shrank and snapped, you're holding him wrong. I don't know how to hold anything. I'm trying to say I've only done one thing right, and that was leave. I'm trying to say I can show you how if you'd like. Let your wings grow back. Ignore the sores they make on your shoulder blades. Welcome the dun-colored feathers. An infection. Thanks, Erica. That was really, really amazing. And the line that uh, that jumped out to me, and it, it jumped out in another part of the book that we might end up covering, is this idea that the speaker admits, uh, "I don't know how to hold anything," which I really, I really, I, I actually, ironically, held on to that line quite tightly, yes. and. The speaker does in this, like, I think exactly what you said, uh, there's the bravado and then the moments of vulnerability. And I think such an extraordinary thing to admit. And, and, the uh, I mean, I just can't help but think of the, the truck bed with the hydrangeas and spring it's upon us, but <laughs> it's a really, really lovely poem. Do you want to say anything about this poem? Because it seems like uh, there's always a relationship and I didn't mention this in the opening, but your your poems are populated with other human beings, you know, and uh, and and there's often 
a dynamic between these kind of characters of these people that emerge. Um, what do you think is the speaker's general kind of relationship with other people and just in a general way, like, is this person tentative to connect and in this particular poem, things just seem a little messy with people? I think that that's a fair, yeah, I think that's a fair way to think about the relationship of the the speaker to other to other people. I, there, I tried to write a, a love poem, <laughs> in in uh, which is if you have two lovers and one is imaginary, and even that I think became uh, very solitary. And uh, <laughs> and my friends joke that maybe I meant they're both imaginary, <laughs> uh, but I do think that there is something uh, a little bit solitary about yeah about the speaker. Uh, this poem was actually when we were actually written about someone I. I don't know very well, which is probably mm-hmm. creepy, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> someone who, you know, was from, you know, rural Tennessee where I'm from and um, seemed to live a very kind of content life, but was one of these people who seemed, uh, because of obligations, very much stuck in this in this place. And that was something, of course, I was always worried about, the way you can become, um, you know, obligated to a place. Uh, so that was kind of the, the genesis of the poem that I thought I would write this. Uh, this letter to someone I actually do not know very well, um, but That's of course right. there's this there's this idea that I take it back because I you know I don't think I would ever you know approach a stranger in this way, uh, and oh. I couldn't even do it in a poem. I couldn't even go through it <laughs> in the poem. So. <laughs> no, that's really great, and I, and I think I'm glad you brought up. It didn't immediately strike me in the book of poems, kind of the relationship with with home and. Uh, how our just our physical home and the street names and the landscape and the nature of the landscape are constantly uh, kind of authoring or writing our identities in so many ways in invisible ways and how I think a sensitive person can suddenly see that and realize that that they are kind of like our homes write a script for us and we dutifully follow them until we. So some of us at least wake up, and it terrifies us that that's happening. And, yeah, I didn't see that, and I'm glad you said that. Um, let's move on. Uh, let's move on to the next poem, uh, Miss Begotten, on page 16. Miss Begotten. Not man enough to hold a man like a child until the morning. I would fight the ache in arms not built for labor, if hard-pressed by you. Near ghosts with head upheld by want and painkillers, the kind I used to hide along with the knives. I lied about not minding blood, and once I called your mother, who said, handle it, love, on the left. I'll hold you wrong if you must rest in me. What prize I've won, what ilk, for hooking necks or bottles with rings, plastic, dirty, bent, Carnivals stroke the young and the lived-in, couched in country, witched with miscarriage. Doorsteps become you. Silence, bruises. Fear, I'll let you linger, halfway bound and blue like stillborns. These become you. Thank you so much. That was really <laughs> incredible. It really, uh, you know, something I... I think as a reader, I am obsessed with looking at content and scenes and going there first and then going to form later. But I do notice in so many of your poems, uh, and this one in particular, 
that you uh the use of the period is so important in that like an accordion that stretches wide and then closes at the sentences or the lines at least they they ebb and flow in length and therefore control the breath for the reader and that is really incredible but uh going back to content and there it is I'll hold you wrong if you must rest in me and these poems while you know the relationships it seems that the eye and the other person who uh who is whoever the speaker seems to be addressing that that relationship always seems to me wrought, you know just kind of wrought with with uh danger and issues or problems that maybe even sometimes I don't even know if the other character is aware of but um how would you describe in particular the speaker seems to have encounters with men that are, I don't know if, I'm trying to think if the men come across as the same and or that the speaker sees similar qualities or these men seem to act in similar ways. Can you just describe as best you can the, the encounters that the speaker has with men and how those encounters at least for the speaker kind of end up how they end up manifesting themselves in the speaker's imagination well i think that you know there is uh i think in a lot of these poems there's of course this undercurrent of violence um and i think that uh it's not something that i ever set out to write when i start a poem um, as I said, I tried to write a love poem. It just didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> I will be making fun of you for that for a long time. <laughs> I think that is a great little anecdote. Um, but I, I think that, you know, more than people, I think that moving from uh, kind of a rural landscape where violence is just part of um, the unspoken culture. So there's, uh, you know, there are animals howling in the night. There are, you know, I live next to this this farm so you know once a year the or actually probably more than that the calves would be kind of taken away from their uh from their mothers and you could hear this kind of awful keening uh and then of course in you know a lot of rural communities there's just you know there's alcoholism and there's uh domestic abuse that goes along with it so i think that those things just really seeped into my consciousness and uh you know the poems uh, you know some of them are kind of addressed to you know to real people but a lot aren't this is this is not one that is addressed to a real person, sure. but um, but it's almost addressed to uh, those people in our lives who at one point or another are just so lost and uh, so broken down for various reasons, and uh, there's this kind of helplessness that you feel as the person who is not, at least at that moment, you know, going through something like that. So I think that that's, that was kind of the poem, and I think that there, there's a violence to that when your friends or, or people that you love are going through trauma that it almost feels like violence. It feels so kind of uh, awful and physically painful. So I think that that's what's coming through in this poem and, and actually in the, the next poem as well, The Swelling of the Throat, um, which is addressed to a woman, but it's the same, kind of the same concept. Yeah, maybe I'll actually have you read that. And I think, I think it go. I really, I think what I initially found challenging about your book, and it was a vulnerability that I had to admit in myself as a reader is, and I can see where I, I sort of want to latch on to it, and maybe unfairly or, or at least in a misguided way, 
is when I see um, a certain representation of men as as they are. And, in fact, what you just said makes a lot of sense in that it isn't exactly – it has more to do with uh, this kind of invisible force when one grows up in a rural setting that people in general are of a certain way. And uh, and maybe violence or aggression is you know is a signature of masculinity. I don't even know, but I mean I have some ideas, I guess. But you know, uh, but I'm glad I'm glad you described it the way the way you did. Let's go ahead and read uh, the swallowing of, of a throat. I think that'd be great. Okay. The swelling of a throat. The way a dress hangs on a woman who's been sick for months. The way her dress hangs resigned to the emergence of bones. And the man who calls her back out isn't a lover, but someone she's paid to deliver her, to leave her via the curb. The way I realize all at once that I've forgotten the details of her friend's face, or that her face didn't always scare me. Light has torn her skin into fine ripples, and rest is due. It's like you said, she says, and I hate her for it. And what is what does that poem mean to you? I don't think I've ever read that poem actually. <laughs> it's really extraordinary. And and this woman, I mean the way the dress hangs on a woman who's been sick for months, um it's ironic, uh um there is somebody even in my neighborhood who is suffering with cancer and I saw I actually saw her today being accompanied around the sidewalk on a with a walker and oxygen and, and this, I think this exact dress was hanging on her exactly as, as you described, you know, resign to the emergence of bones and yeah, just as a, well, just a provocative kind of reminder of, of what all, what awaits all of us in many ways, you know. Yeah. I think that, I mean, there's a ravaging that can happen with certain mm-hmm. diseases and it's, uh, uh, it is startling, and I think that especially, you know, if you don't see if you don't see the person for a while, there's this. I mean, I think it really can be a very frightening experience. Um, and we live in this, of course, we live in this nomadic society, so we all have friends spread out. We have loved ones spread out uh, throughout the country and the world. So there are there can be these long stretches of time when you don't see someone. Um, and there, yeah, I think that there is this kind of fear related to it, and it's, it's an embarrassing kind of fear. I think that's why I paused so long before I spoke about this yeah. film, but it's embarrassing to admit that you're kind of afraid of someone you love being so so sick. But it is, it's a, it's a fear for them, but also, and this is the embarrassing part, so right. it is a fear for yourself. It's a kind of a realization that uh, your body can, can do this. It can ravage itself. No, uh, yeah, I like that you were used the word embarrassing. I think it's in many ways, the writers are the the poet's job to to write what embarrasses us about ourselves. In many ways, I think that's exactly right. Um, let's move on to uh, to another poem, shall we? Sure. I'm thinking uh, the instructional on uh, page 21. All right. The instructional. It's the last of the terminally ill, my mother says, pulling down preserves. I know what she means. 
She means she's relieved that our town will stop disappearing for a while. We'll hold at 410, give or take. She means she's anxious because deaths come in threes and Charlie makes two. They can't build on that land, my mother says, preheating the oven. I know what she means. She means by the creek where it floods. She means no makeshift house was, no makeshift house can survive such waters. She means those boys I used to run with don't know any better. When are you coming home? My mother asks, sliding the pie in. I know what she's asking. She's asking, did I hear that men are throwing stones at other men in celebration? She means post-election in Palestine. Do I remember how the hummingbird smashed and cracked into the kitchen window until she took the feeder down and the murmurs of their wings were overwhelmed by other songs, by other birds? Thanks. That was really extraordinary. Um, and it made this amazing leap uh from such a domestic space as the kitchen to um, post-election in Palestine, um, and the, and it seems that the the poem keeps kind of telescoping in and out of tiny imagery to kind of kind of more global kind of concerns, but also I think on the more intimate level, it, it showed kind of this uncanny relationship between. The speaker and the mother, in fact, uh, it's a secret type of communication, I think, particular to mothers and daughters where one thing is being said on the surface and a million other things are being talked about in many ways. Um, can you talk about this poem, too, and in, in not only in that, that, the, that there's a double language or a double communication happening, but this kind of leap into the historical and the political. Um, and maybe, you know, there is that point. My mother says, as she pulls down the preserves was, I don't know why, but I, this is a heartbreaking image for me <laughs> because it was so, so innocent and so comforting. And <laughs> I loved it. And then next thing I know, like people are throwing rocks at each other in celebration. I'm like, wow, I don't know. What happened? <laughs> you dragged me out of the kitchen. I want my mom back. But uh, can you talk about this poem in, in the sense that uh, the relationship between the speaker and the mom and also this catapult into the historical and political? Sure. This, this is a little bit of an older poem, so I don't remember how I started. I don't remember sure. what the, the impetus was. Um, but I, I am interested in the way that um, – you know, the, the news, we're so kind of, uh, you know, attuned to the news, even if you don't watch, you know, if you don't have CNN or you don't have uh, news programs, we are constantly bombarded with updates. And I think that, it, you know, even with the events that are that are uh, somewhat smaller, that we don't kind of, um, that don't enter our conversations, I think they're there. I think they kind of change the way that we have dialogues with people. And for the people that are closest to us, you know, you there is so much that's unspoken that it's, uh, you know, you can almost hear the tone change in someone's voice. Sure. Um, and it, obviously it's not always caused by the news or by world events, but I think that with the people you're closest to in your life, you can have this kind of secret uh, vocabulary and secret way of communicating. So um, I, ho I hope that that's coming across a little bit. Um, 
I don't think of myself as a political poet, but I, I, I'm always worried that I'm afraid to be a political poet. So I, right. I, I just don't ever want to kind of resist things entering, you know, if they want to enter into the work, I want to, you know, I want to let them do that. Um, even with issues that I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on or even, mm-hmm. even, even issues that I haven't sorted out all of my own uh, thoughts about. I think that, you know, if it, if it keeps kind of happening in the poems, it keeps bubbling up and you have to kind of trust your, Trust that something's there, something's going on. Worry it into into being, I guess. I think that's exactly right, and I think it is a conundrum, especially for the American poet to, uh, you know, the political and one's poetry. Um, I think that is something that all poets uh, wrestle with. I think with great humility, and uh, but you're right. I, th- I like the way it, it comes up in your poem in a way. Where the the speaker and the mother are talking about very localized issues, while simultaneously mixed with the personal, it seems like, and then this kind of yeah, this catapult to an entirely different region with entirely different political concerns. Um, it seems like there was no judgment made on on its entrance into the poem, but just an acknowledgement that these things intrude into the borders of our lives and. Let the. It seemed to me that that was all the poem needed to say about that. Um, let's go ahead and uh, keep moving along here. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to page thirty-six for uh, the poem that shares the title of the book: "Instructions for Killing the Jackal." All right. Instructions for killing the jackal. Filed the teeth first. No, first shoot the trank. Then teeth, nails, testes. Feed yourself valium a faint of heart. Jackals may be faint of heart. This is necessary to kill the jackal that keeps the man. Embroidered pillows, learn the inferno, learn Italian, then the inferno in Italian. And for his return, recite passages he'll not understand, though he's been there, and return to you, more man, less jackal. Say... I'll take you furless and toothless, take your gums and the necks from the razor, let you bleed on me if you return. Purple-eyed and callous, rub your calluses against mine. We could stand each other until we got to the good parts. All right, thanks. I Heck, I love all your poems. Why, why did you... Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, why did you decide... I mean, was this a poem you knew you were going to decide to name the book after, or is this just something that organically came up during the process of putting the manuscript together? Um, so answer that, just how this became kind of the central poem maybe for the collection, if it is. And also, how do you, how do, how are we um, – and I'm not sure if you can answer this, but how should we conceptualize this jackal, and, and why does it need to be killed? <laughs> a great question. Um, well, I didn't, uh, I didn't, and I didn't title the collection "Instructions for Killing the Jackal." The poem came, you know, the poem came before, before the book. Um, it, it it has kind of two inspirations. One is I love Julio Cortazar's how-to poems. I could just read those again and again. So I was writing my my own. I did not want to call it a how-to poem because. Mm-hmm. I don't want us to be directly compared to those brilliant uh, little prose pieces. But also it was um, 
it came a little bit from uh, seeing the statue of Anubis at the uh, Brooklyn Museum. Um, this has a pretentious derby. <laughs> oh, we should never apologize for our experience, no matter what it is. No, tell, no, I'm really actually, you know, screw that. I'm actually genuinely curious about this. Well, it had, so I saw the statue of Anubis, and um, I don't quite, uh, I don't want to describe it in case I get it wrong, but for some reason I started thinking about, um, you know, all the, the lovers this god must have had, and Anubis is an Egyptian god who's half jackal and half man, mm-hmm. and, you know, this idea of the difficulty of, for these women, I mean, I really thought of it on a, on a literal level, this difficulty of these women who could, you know, love uh, this kind of beast slash man creature and, and what they could do, what, you know, what's the solution? And I thought, well, maybe there, it might be possible to kill the God part and keep the, keep the man. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of where the poem began. And then I, you know, I started to see it as, um, you know, a little bit the way we want to change people and, and take away their worst parts. And, of course, it's, uh, you know, it's fantasy. It's not, it doesn't often uh, work out that way. Sure. Um, so I think it, but it really started at, you know, kind of a liter- uh, as a literal exercise and, and thinking about how we can, how I can empower these, these women who are, um, obviously they're, they're fictional, but powerless. Yeah, that's interesting. It's really interesting to hear the genesis of the poem. And, uh, genesis, a, that's the word I was trying to think of. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, it is a startling, startling title because um, it's interesting when someone is willing to give us instructions on how to kill anything. So. <laughs> I, think I, don't think, I don't think these instructions would actually work very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you say, you know, embroider pillows, learn the Inferno, wait, wait, learn Italian, and, and then the Inferno in Italian. It seems like that you would maybe not be a very good writer for uh, manuals or instructions. Probably for not. Well, for at least toasters or something. <laughs> but uh, for yeah. poems, indeed, um, and killing things. Uh, <laughs> no, there is a... A lovely violence. I am not embarrassed to say it that um, I don't know. I think as a reader, I'm just I'm naturally drawn to uh, just because I think violence uh, just seems to be attempting to. Well, one, it, there seems to be a inherent in it a certain grievance, and I'm starting to think that that grievance is just with the conundrum of being human on this planet. So, uh, so I really kind of. Uh, I'm drawn to it in poetry. It tells me that that poet uh, is a sensitive one. Let me uh, let me move on to page uh, 53 for the poem Prowl. Prowl. They pull at me, these ropes wound around the ribs I can feel. It's down to hacksaw or the end of me. Those rung lowest, I might wiggle off. The tie on the top right has frayed. I've bullied it with fingernails, scaling knives, razor blades. Its bone is tender, but it will go. What is the ship I draw? What are these holes and cells, ballast and crew besides? Sever my salt-beaten cords. Let me plunge into the black. Make home among the wrecked and wonderful. Thanks, Sarah. That is so breathtaking. Um, never, you know, I, I want to initially talk about the nautical metaphors going on in here, but it 
there was something else that jumped out in this poem that I wanted to just ask you about. And I kind of, I took the last poet I interviewed uh, off guard when I, when I pointed out a word that kept emerging in his poems. And uh, he kind of was like, what? <laughs> but then he was able to pivot out of there and really answer it in an interesting way. But no pressure at all. No but pressure. I, I did notice that salt, you know, the material of salt is kind of comes up in your poem. And, you know, I was kind of like, I take salt for granted, I throw it on food, but there seems to be, you know, and then when I start thinking of kind of salt in antiquity and religious traditions, um, and as a general natural material that we find um, in the ocean and elsewhere, that it is has such metaphorical capabilities and metaphorical voltage. Uh, can you tell me about how this kind of word and maybe you can. It's okay because it's totally unfair for me to ask in the first place. But uh, what, what could you say about salt? With that intro, I'm really tempted to just be like, no, John, I don't know. I don't know what this means. Yeah, well, you make it up, whatever. <laughs> well, you know, I, I really actually I, I have not noticed that salt was one of my words, although I do I like the sound of it. Um, mm. It has a nice, you know, I think it's one of those words that's, it uh, sounds like what it is. You know, it's hearty and it's one syllable and it kind of puts you. Um, you know, I do, whatever you were saying, you mentioned the religious kind of connotations of salt. I do remember at one point being very uh, interested in uh, poems about uh, Lot's wife. And mm-hmm. there's one particular, and I haven't read it in uh, many years, so I can't recall any details, but uh, Akhmadova has a, a, a poem about Lot's wife. And I remember reading that um, over and over again and just being um kind of you know fascinated with the uh the mythology of it this idea of someone feeling so compelled to look behind them to look at their you know where they had come from that they uh would risk the wrath of god mm-hmm. um and then the you know the punishment is at once terrible and uh an instantaneous yeah there's a uh, swiftness to it yeah there's a swiftness to it and i think that you know thinking about it in terms of you know, of, of God being merciful or something like that. It is, actually. It's sort of, he keeps his word, but he doesn't, I would imagine it's not a slow process. At least I hope she doesn't turn to salt very slowly. <laughs> uh, but there, but at her, I think that I'm, but I'm more interested, I think, in her and this idea of having to look back or wanting to look back so badly that you mm-hmm. risk that. So maybe there's a little bit of that salt creeping, maybe her salt's creeping into the palm. Yeah, I can, I think uh, I could totally... I could totally see that. And now that, and in the beginning of our conversation, the way you mentioned kind of the metamorphosis of this speaker, um, it does suddenly kind of jump out at me uh, um, that the poems near the end of the book take on, not only does it seem that that other people are starting to be somewhat obliterated from the content that the eye suddenly is really standing alone in this kind of transformation. And that, uh, and like you said about the story about Lot's wife, yeah, the salt uh, is definitely represented as something that transforms something that either either preserves or corrodes, you know. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, if you could read... The last poem of the book, that'd be fantastic. Uh, Rome okay. affords no prey. Right. Rome affords no prey. 
After swimming for days in the sea, I am thirsty. Salt has made my body crystal, fine and resistant. Grate me between forefinger and thumb. Do it over every meal you serve to your disciples. They won't even know I'm in there, going down their demanding gullets. I have drifted into regions where incest is lawful, and never cannibalism, poor beetles, poor crows. After swimming for days in the sea, I can recall my death and prefer the small one where I sink from too much salt burning into my pores. My old religion was more flexible, but I was younger then. Thank you uh, <laughs> so much for that. That's fantastic. Um, our show is uh, titled New Books and Poetry, and it's a I had to have this book on, and I had to have you on, but I can't deny the fact that it did get published in 2011. Yes. And I am wondering what your relationship as an artist, as a writer, as a poet, as a human being, what is, when you look back at these poems, uh, uh, what is that kind of, it's funny because we talked about looking back, though. <laughs> and in many ways, this might be just looking back at what you <laughs> Uh, around Let's out. you know I you know I still I, I still feel very attached to these poems and I hope that never goes away I do know um, of course there are, there are stories of poets getting older and, and um, really you know refusing their first their first collections and I think it's flawed when I look at it there are things that I you know I wish were different about it but uh, I'm still very proud of it and uh I feel very, yeah, I do feel very kind of still attached to these poems. And I, um, even though, as I said, the, the earliest poem was written 10 years ago, um, I don't remember the genesis, but I, I remember the person who wrote them. I remember what I was like, you know, 10 exactly. years ago. Yeah, and I'm not the same person then, but I, you know, uh, I still like her. <laughs> she was she was a mess, but, you know, she was... She, yeah, but you do see it as somebody who is going through things and experiencing things that um, that you maybe aren't uh, privy to anymore, you know, that you are not experiencing yeah. exactly. I think that's really, really fascinating how it captures a moment in time in, our, in the writer's life. Like, this is what needed to be said then. And, and it gets me to um, the next point of our conversation is what, things you feel like need to be said now and and you recently shared that um you've been writing a lot of prose lately and then you in fact uh have a new book coming out of prose can you tell us about that manuscript and and uh maybe the tentative title for it and of course we don't have an entire other hour to go into <laughs> into its uh its whole maturation, but I do want to hear just a little about it, particularly about your transition to prose. I think you said, I got a sense in our earlier conversation about your time at NYU that something was telling me that you were very much a prose writer before poetry, and I could totally be wrong about that, but that the literature you were maybe drawn to even as a, a person who was younger and reading books was maybe prose. Um, what has been the transition like for you from being so immersed in not only poems, but really the poetry community writ large, how does it feel to just be writing prose now and having this this novel come out? And if you can tell us a little about the novel, that'd be great. 
Sure. The you know the novel kind of uh, took me by surprise. Uh, it it took me a long uh, well not a long time compared to to I'm sure some processes, but it did take me you know nearly let's say two two and a half years to actually you know complete it. So it was a it was a surprise whenever I really still felt connected to it enough to keep working on it. But it's a it's a crime novel, so it's a, it's a definitely a totally different genre, and it's called The Red Chameleon. And it'll be coming out from Pegasus Books next year, so I'm really excited about that. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I, I when I first graduated from Columbia, I was teaching at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and uh, I was teaching you know freshman comp courses. But a lot of my students, in fact, the vast majority, were going into criminology or forensic science. Uh, so I started trying to you know find articles that I thought were um, you know, could spark their interest so that we could have critical conversations about it. So I found myself researching, you know, uh, what it was to, like to be an undercover cop in New York City, which is pretty fascinating because there aren't very many of them, um, particularly the, the people who are deep undercover, you know, it's 10 or less at a time. So it's completely That's pretty incredible, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's completely fascinating. And then, you know, just looking at some other things, um, and I think that that kind of seeped into my consciousness, and then I you know, started reading um, some murder mysteries just for, for pleasure. So for a while, I was just reading. I would read. I would have a stack of poetry books, and then, you know, at night, I would <laughs> kind of curl up in bed and read my, my murder mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, you know, I just thought, well, you know, maybe maybe I love these. They're really fun, um, and some of them are great. Uh, some of them are more than fun. Some of them are really doing some interesting things with, with the genre. So I thought, you know, maybe... I can try my hand at this. Um, and then also, I ha- actually started at a time when um, I started writing prose, not this particular project, but I started writing prose at a time when I just kept getting rejections for the book, just over the rejections for the poetry collection. And I found it very difficult to write poems when you're getting these <laughs> rejection letters. That's really so fascinating, thought, yeah. Yeah. So I started, what I found is if I were writing prose, I could trick myself into writing poems. So I would start and I would sit at my desk and I would write prose uh, and a lot of it was awful. And then I would feel kind of comfortable enough to sort of start working on other poems. So I was sort of a, it was almost like a, a some sort of a trick, some sort of mental trick. No, I think that is such a fantastic <laughs> insight. I think like poets and any writers, you know, they, it's just, an, I think what you just really encapsulated is just the life of the writer and the things how you have to trick oneself into generating <laughs> language when it, yeah. it's really the only thing you know to do and love to do. Well, yeah. congratulations on the novel. That's really fantastic. Thanks. I can't wait to read it. Um, as so new books and poetry, I don't know if I could actually have you back to talk about the novel, but I'll see what I can do. No. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I don't think that'll work. <laughs> I'll definitely be reading it and being in touch. Um, Erica's... Uh, Book of Poems is Instructions for Killing the Jackal, Black Lawrence Press, 2011. And look for her novel in 2013, is that right? Or 2014 or 15 or yeah, what year? 2014, next, next uh, year, 2014. Right. Fantastic. Erica, thanks for being on. No, thank you. This is great. All right, talk to you later. Bye.